Welcome to Tales of History and Imagination. Eccentric Tales from History by Simone Whitlock. In the year 751 AD, an epic battle was fought between two mighty powers. We don't know for certain if it happened in Taraz, modern-day Kazakhstan, or Talas in Kyrgyzstan, around 180 kilometers away. Either way, it became known as the Battle of Talas, as both cities are on the Talas River. On one side, the Muslim Abbasid Caliphate. Only a year earlier, this Iraqi kingdom had wrested power from the Umayyads and were now rapidly consolidating their territory. They were joined by a large contingent from the Tibetan Empire, then more a bona fide empire than a country, with land stretching as far west as the Pamir Mountains of Tajikistan. On the other side, the Chinese Tang Dynasty. The Tang were one of the world's great powers at the time. Recently, they'd taken advantage of localized conflicts between the Turkic tribes who inhabited the Central Asian steppe and pushed westwards into their territory. Like the Abbasids and the Umayyads before them, they found the seizure of oasis cities along the Silk Road an extremely profitable thing to do. In 750, the Chinese, led by General Giao Xianzi, captured the Uzbek city of Tashkent, a city nominally under Arab control. An Abbasid general staying at Tashkent, Ziad ibn Sali, barely escaped with his life. Once safely in the city of Samarkand, he called upon the Abbasids to send a large army to stop the Tang invasion. In response, Giao Xianzi bolstered his own forces with several thousand Kaluk mercenaries. Both sides faced off with massive armies in tow. Rice's claim they showed up with around 100,000 troops apiece. The two sides were well matched, and the battle raged for months. Tens of thousands of lives were lost on both sides, and the battle ground to a stalemate. The months-long impasse was finally broken when the Kaluk, clearly sick of a tang, changed sides. This gave the Abbasids the victory. Geopolitically, the Battle of Talas was a massive deal. For one, China paused their Western expansion following the loss. Chinese technologies then unknown to the Caliphate, like papermaking, types of jewellery making, and fabric weaving, were also brought to the Caliphate. This was largely done so by the capture and transport of Chinese soldiers with specific skills. Many of these captives went to the far reaches of the Abbasid Empire. The following is an extremely fragmentary story of one of these men. Our captive was an officer named Du Huan. Somehow Du escaped the clutches of the Caliphate and was back in Guangzhou, China by 762 to write a book of his adventures. Infuriatingly, that book which I can't imagine being anything other than a mind-blowing adventure story, was subsequently lost to history. A very few excerpts survived down to us in a Chinese encyclopedia, 
written soon after Du Huan's time. Those excerpts suggest some captives were sent much further than anyone first thought. We're told Du was taken to a land he called Molin, at the edge of the empire. The people of Molin were extremely dark-skinned. The land had next to no vegetation, certainly no rice or cereals. One strange observation was these people fed their horses dried fish in lieu of grain. The people themselves ate dates as their staple food. There was no grass or trees in the land of Molin. Inland was extremely rocky and mountainous. Similarly, the mountains were denuded of vegetation. One strange detail, these people, Du claimed, cured diarrhea through cutting into a patient's head. From Molin, Du was moved to the land of Laubosa. In Laubosa, dark-skinned Christian and Muslim communities coexisted peacefully together. They mixed and traded free of a kind of conflict that had brought him there in the first place. People worked six days a week and took their own religious observances on the seventh. Some people believe Labosa was a mispronunciation of Al-Habasha, the Arabic name for Abyssinia, modern-day Ethiopia. This is hardly settled fact. As Abbasid generals had pushed into Umayyad Central Asia, others were doing the same in Umayyad North Africa. Christian communities lived throughout North Africa among the Berbers and Muslim invaders at the time. In Molin was Sudan, and Labosa, Ethiopia. Or alternately, he was describing two North African outposts. Du Huan's writings likely provide the earliest known description of Africa by a Chinese writer. A few episodes ago, we looked at a woman known as Roxolana, a rare case of a person who went from being enslaved in a faraway land to climbing the highest rungs in that new land. None of the following cases were as successful, but they have all fascinated me for years. Today, we discuss the diaspora, tales of people who found themselves a long way from home. In September 1253, 18 years before Marco Polo's journey to China, the Flemish missionary William of Rubruck rode into Karakurum, Mongolia. An envoy for King Louis IX, Rubruck was on a mission to ask Great Khan for his military assistance. As a Franciscan missionary, he had a side mission. He wanted nothing more than to convert the entirety of Tartary to Christianity as he travelled. But this is not really his story, so we won't dwell on William for too long. William arrived in Palestine in 1248 as one of the King of France's entourage. The king was determined to lead the Seventh Holy Crusade against Islam. Jerusalem had been lost back to the Muslims in 1244, so Louis planned to invade Egypt, to hit Islam in their breadbasket. This was going to be an uphill battle. Back home, the Pope was in a fiery dispute with the Holy Roman Emperor which in turn led to fewer people going out in crusade. All the same, the monarch was hopeful they could take out Egypt, and from there, the Holy Land. The crusade played out terribly for Louis. For one, the Egyptians trounced the invaders. They took many captives, the king included, and imprisoned them for years. 
Louis was eventually released, and sadly for him, didn't know when to quit. He tried his luck at an eighth crusade, but died of dysentery in Tunisia in 1270. But in the beginning, Louis did have quite the plan. He would win over the most powerful man on earth. He hoped this man, the great Khan of the Mongol Empire, would lend him the added muscle needed to crush the Muslims. Optimistically, Louis had also hoped the Mongols would only ask for Syria in return. The first delegate he sent was a missionary and adventurer named Andrew of Longjumo. Apologies for all the mispronunciations in this episode. Longjumo already knew something of the Near East. In 1238, he returned from Constantinople with some old junk he claimed was the crown of thorns that had been placed on Christ's head at his crucifixion. Louis IX was so impressed with the find, he built a chapel to house the relic. This time Longjumeau was sent to Armenia, on the border of the Mongol Empire. The Khan, a man named Goyuk, was open to a coalition against the Egyptians. So in 1249, the missionary trekked to Karakurum. When he arrived, the emperor's widow, Ogul Gaimish, bluntly broke it to Longjumeau. The emperor had passed, and they were far too busy holding a hurultai, the tribal leaders, to deal with his nonsense. He was sent packing. The king hoped if he tried again, the new emperor would be as receptive as Goyuk. In May 1253, William of Rubruck arrived. Having travelled 9,000 kilometres through what must have seemed an epically strange land, he sent notice of his wish to meet the new Khan, Chinggis's grandson, Monkey. Monkey Khan kept him waiting until January 4th, 1254 for his sit-down, which gave William plenty of time to take in the Mongol capital. While there, he discovered an enclave of French citizens and a rather remarkable drinking fountain. As I'd mentioned in last year's Assassin's episode, The Old Man of the Mountain, one of the first instances to bring the Mongols into Europe was the pursuit of another steppe tribe named the Kipchaks. Fearing for their lives, those steppe people fled to Eastern Europe, where Hungary and what is now Bulgaria offered them sanctuary. This protection meant little to the Mongols, who invaded, rounded up many Kipchak, and sold them into slavery. One such slave we've mentioned before was a giant who at around the time of William of Rubruck's stay in Mongolia was involved in a rebellion in Egypt. Baybars would later be crowned Sultan of the Mamluks. While rampaging through Belgrade, modern-day Serbia, the Mongols kidnapped a French master goldsmith named Gulam Boucher. Unfortunately for him, or fortunately, perhaps, if you consider most people who crossed paths of a Mongol horde got killed. He was one of a number of local artisans sent back to the capital on account of their great skill. The Mongols soon found an impressive project for Mr. Boucher. As the Mongols grew in stature from steppe tribe to one of the most powerful empires in history, they absorbed much knowledge and culture from the people they subjugated. This led to, in some respects, gentrification. This especially was the case with alcohol. Besides their traditional fermented mare's milk, the Mongols had really broadened their palate. 
In Karakuram did Mongikan, a giant fountain, decree, and it was the eminently talented Baucha who was ordered to build it. In 1253, Baucha was provided with a team of 50 artisans from across the empire to assist him. By the time William of Rubruck had sat down with the great Khan, he would have been ushered through the courtyard, where a giant mechanical tree stretched high. Expansive, ornate, constructed from glistening silver, detailed with silver fruit, golden serpents, and at its apex, an angel with a trumpet. Boucher crafted a true marvel of his age. More than a mere statue, this piece was an automaton. Below the four golden serpents lay four large silver bowls. When the great Khan gave the order, a subterranean pump was activated and alcohol flowed from the mouths of the snakes. The angel atop the tree raised its trumpet to its lips and sounded a note to signify, now we eat, drink, and be merry. A sign perhaps that the Monga Khan wished to be a good host to as many peoples. The four drinks chosen were from the four corners of the Mongol Empire. Wine, mead, rice wine, and ayarag, the fermented mare's milk so beloved among the steppe people. Of course, some may wonder if the true purpose of the tree was to flex to guests, such as Rubruk. Not only do we have everything you could want, but we have it in excess. And this may have been cooked into the design. Far less cynically, I wonder if the tree contains another, deeper meaning. Monga Khan's grandfather, the mighty Chinggis Khan, had a mentor as a young man. When he was a young, lowly but resourceful warrior from an obscure tribe, the powerful warlord, the Yong Khan, took him under his wing. Seeing something special in the kid, the warlord gave the young Temujin his start in world conquest. The Yong Khan, sick and tired of being played against one another by the Chinese, wanted to unite all the tribes into a vast superpower, and he'd even had an ancestor who tried to unite all the steppe tribes. The legend has it the Yong Khan's ancestor tried to bring the tribes together under a tree much like the one Baosha fashioned. Was Monga Khan invoking the memory of the Yong Khan in the commission of this wonderful fountain? letting his fellow tribes know he was committed to unification. Sadly, somewhere along the timeline, the fountain of Karakuram disappeared without a trace. Like Samuel Taylor Coleridge's poem, Kublai Khan, this chapter can only ever be a fragment. Some brief traces of Baosha's work survive, like ironwork at a Buddhist temple at a place called Odini So, though none of his work for the Mongols appears to have survived the ages. Nor do we know, ultimately, what became of him. One hopes that in, to quote Coleridge, the savage place is holy and enchanted, as ere beneath the waning moon was haunted by woman wailing for her demon lover. The Mr. Boucher found a semblance of a regular life and a sense of contentment in his situation. Okay, well, one final take on this subject today. This one begins near a town called Kahai, near modern-day Haran, Turkey, the year 53 BC. Again, two armies prepared to face off in battle, though in this case the two forces were strikingly different from one another. 
On one side, the Parthians, the latest group to rule over Persia. Commanded by Serena, one of the most gifted military commanders Persia has ever produced, the Parthians numbered around 10,000. The army was mostly horse-bound archers, joined by around a thousand cataphracts, effectively the closest thing the ancient world had to a medieval knight. On the other side, the Romans, 40,000 strong, and mostly made up of legionnaires, with a couple of thousand cavalry and light infantry thrown in for good measure. The Romans were led by one Marcus Licinius Crassus. Crassus was a prominent Roman citizen, a leading soldier who fought alongside Sulla, the dictator who ruled Rome from 82 to 79 BC. We have mentioned him in Mithridates. Crassus benefited greatly from the civil war which swept Sulla into power. A number of leading Romans were stripped of their land, which was sold off cheaply. Marcus Crassus bought a lot of that land. As Rome's leading real estate investor, he was also its wealthiest citizen. The man also had an alliance with two powerful Romans, the famed general Pompey the Great, and his protege, a young man named Julius Caesar. In recent years, he felt increasingly overshadowed by his partners in the First Triumvirate. When he was appointed governor of Roman Syria in 56 BC, Crassus started to look into who he could conquer to match his friends and martial prowess. The wealthy, powerful Parthian Empire was just across the border. Now it is an understatement the battle did not go the Romans' way. Already weary from marching through arid plains for days on end, as a local ruler they mistook for an ally, advised them to steer clear of the Euphrates River. They were also 40,000 men who effectively brought a knife to a gunfight. In a pitched battle, Crassus's seven legions would likely have mown through the Parthians. But the horse-bound archers repeatedly galloped towards the Romans at speed, fired a rain of arrows, and then veered back. Extremely capable horsemen, the Parthians fired a rain of parting shots of the Romans as they retreated. Several efforts to engage the Parthians failed. The Roman cavalry were no match for the Parthians and their infantry couldn't even get near them. The Romans adopted testudo formations, effectively taking cover under their shields, the front row propping their shields up as a makeshift wall. Several subsequent rows made the roof. The Parthian archers, who had brought a large supply of arrows on a caravan of camels parked just outside of the field, and the summer sun beating down on the Roman testudo, wore the Romans down. Further attempts by the Romans to mount an offence failed. Crassus's own son, Publius, was routed, captured and beheaded. His head was sent back to the Romans, leaving Crassus bereft. The Parthians now encircled Crassus's army and charged from all angles. As night fell with thousands of Roman soldiers either dead or dying, the remainder completely outclassed. Serena ordered the Parthians off the battlefield. What was left of the Roman army, as quietly as they could, retreated to the town of Carhai itself. One could imagine this was not terribly quietly done, as dying comrades yelled out to the living to take them, too. 
The injured were left to die on the battlefield. The next morning, the Parthians returned, killing anyone still alive on the battlefield, then finishing off the rest of Crassus's army. Losses were negligible for the Parthians. The Romans, however, lost 20,000 men, Crassus included. A further 10,000 were taken captive and transported to Alexandra Margiana, a city now called Merv. Alexandra Margiana was another powerful oasis city on the Silk Route, situated in modern-day Turkmenistan. In 1940, the subsequent whereabouts of these captured men became cause for speculation when a sinologist named Homer Dubbs claimed their forebears lived in a sleepy Chinese village called Li Quan. His reasoning was based around another ancient battle, in a place we've already discussed. In 36 BC, a battle was fought out near Taraz on the Talas River. On one side, 40,000 Han Chinese warriors. On the other, a coalition of around 3,000 Xiongnu tribesmen from the north of China and around 10,000 Sogdian horsemen, a steppe civilization who played an oversized role in the movement of goods along the Silk Road in ancient times, and an alleged contingent of European mercenaries. Now this battle went China's way. A number of Sogdian nobles changed sides beforehand. The Xiongnu were defeated, and their leader, a man named Zizi Qianyu, was forced back into his fort, which the Han stormed soon after. The tactics of the allegedly European mercenaries caught Dubs' attention. When the Han ramped up their attack, the mercenaries fell back into a testudo formation. These mercenaries were among a small number of Xiongnu forces who were captured and sent off into the far reaches of the Han Empire by the victors. Homer Dubbs was convinced these men were remnants of Crassus's missing legions. If so, we know nothing of their lives in the 17 years between the defeat at Kahai and their defeat at the Battle of Zhiji. Alexandra Magiana, then a large, extremely wealthy, polyglot city, was likely to have been a massive culture shock for these legionnaires. One presumes somehow these men either worked their way out of slavery, or escaped onto the steppe to find a new home among the Xiongnu. More recently, theories have been put forward that these men were not Roman, but Seleucids, Eastern remnants of Alexander the Great's empire, which splintered off into many smaller kingdoms following his death in 323 BC. The city of Alexandra Margiana itself was a Seleucid enclave, as late as 63 BC. The Greek or Hellenized warriors had moved on from Greek hoplite formations to Roman tactics over a few hundred years is plausible. Others, from Arabs to Franks to Vikings, borrowed the Testudo in later years. If so, they most likely hailed from Fergana, another Seleucid kingdom, in modern-day Uzbekistan. What caught Mr. Dubbs' attention was the western appearance of the people living in Li Quan in 1940, a remote village with little contact with the outside world. Dubbs was surprised at the European facial features light skin and green eyes of many villagers. 
The question of their ethnicity reached the European mainstream in 2007, as several news outlets ran with the story. One light-skinned, green-eyed villager, Kai Junian, nicknamed Kai the Roman, became the public face of Crassus's lost legions. An early DNA test suggested they had other European DNA in their profiles. A subsequent, more accurate test suggested they had no significant levels of European DNA and were primarily Han Chinese. Thank you for listening. This has been Tales of History and Imagination. All episodes written and narrated by me, Simone Whitlow. All music, yours truly. Visit the show at historyandimagination.com. You can follow me on social media, links in the show notes get access to exclusive bonus content via my Patreon, also in the notes. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a like on your podcatcher of choice and share the episode as word of mouth is the best way to help shows like this grow. See you back in two weeks' time for more tales of history and imagination.